The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston in the sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday, in person or on live stream. For details, go to fapc.org. And now, here is Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston. Let's listen in to the book of Job, chapter 38, beginning with the 39th verse. Can you hunt prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their covert? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch to give birth to their offspring and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They, they grow up in the open. They go forth and do not return to them. Who has let the wild ass go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift ass to which I have given the steppe for its home, the salt land for its dwelling place? It scorns the tumult of the city. It does not hear the shouts of the driver. It ranges the mountains as its pasture, and it searches after every green thing. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's talk about ravens. Ravens are fascinating creatures, smart birds, smart enough to be a bit unnerving. Edgar Allan Poe leverages this apprehension in his poem, The Raven. The raven hits a total Halloween vibe when on a midnight dreary, the black-winged bird begins gently rapping, rapping at the author's chamber door before uttering the ominous word, nevermore. Personally, I find ravens to be more mischievous than creepy. I once witnessed a raven sitting on a tree branch drop an apple core on the head of a person walking underneath. And it was no accident. The bird reloaded. It flew down, retrieved the core, and prepared to drop its trash projectile on the next person coming by. Back in the 1980s, there was a raven named Reese who lived at the Tower of London. And Reese had learned to mimic the sound of a dog barking. And Reese put his skill to good use. He would fly down from a high perch in the tower, land behind a group of tourists, and begin barking at them. When the tourists would whirl around, afraid that they were about to be attacked by a ferocious dog, they would spot Reese walking away, cackling to himself. 
This past week, my wife Amy read me a story about a woman in Virginia who has been feeding a group of crows, close cousins to the ravens. Every day, the crows land on a feeding platform where their benefactor has left a handful of peanuts still in their shells, and the crows return the favor. They leave behind presents, shiny objects. This woman has received marbles, paper clips, and even, just this past week, two shiny coins, a dime and a penny, 11 cents. Ravens make frequent appearance in the Bible. Noah sends a raven out to search for dry land after the flood. When the prophet Elijah is on the verge of starvation in the wilderness, God sends ravens to bring him food. Can you spot the raven on the cover of your bulletin today? Our own Ashley Gonzalez says that it looks like the bird is bringing Elijah a bacon, egg, and cheese roll. <laughs> if Elijah's wilderness were Central Park, I am certain that breakfast rolls would be on the menu. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus speaks about ravens. Our Lord assures us that God looks after the birds. The Psalms speak about God's care for ravens, too. And then there's Job. Over time, Job has become one of my favorite books of the Bible. And this may seem like a strange choice. After all, Job focuses on suffering. Job experiences unfair, unwarranted, and almost unendurable suffering. Seeking to process Job's awful circumstances, his friends keep coming to visit him, and they offer all sorts of theories as to why their buddy's life is so miserable. But Job will have none of it. He rejects the suggestion that his suffering is cosmic payback for some secret sin. And Job also rejects his wife's conclusion that the world is a cruel place and that he should give up on faith and life. You know things are bad when your spouse says to you, curse God and die. It's there. It's right there. Instead of surrendering, though, Job complains. Job rails at God. I've been there. In fact, in recent weeks, I've been there. So have some of you. People still turn to clergy in times of dismay and despair, tragedy and suffering. And we listen, we pray, we offer shoulders to lean against and weep on. We pray some more. And these, these prayers over time, especially when suffering is unrelenting, they grow increasingly urgent and sometimes even angry. I've prayed a few pretty frustrated prayers this past month, both with 
and four members of this congregation. Job prays these prayers. Angry prayers, desperate prayers. Job tosses his confusion and hurt and bruised hope at heaven in an uncommonly honest fashion. He is, to use a popular buzzword, authentic. Eventually, all this authenticity elicits a response from God. Comedian Woody Allen paraphrases God's answer to Job in this way. And the Lord spake, and his voice thundered. Must I, who created heaven and earth, explain my ways to thee? What hath thou created that thou dost dare question me? To which Alan imagines Job responding, Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Thou hast a good job. Don't blow it. <laughs> is that how we ought to summarize today's text? Does God remind Job that he's but a small part of creation? Job, just because you've suffered, does not give you the right to criticize the creator of all that is. Does God put Job in his place? Honestly, it does not read that way to me. The poetry we heard this morning, and Job is Hebrew poetry, does not sound like a clumsy appeal to divine omnipotence to me. Listen. Listen again to the questions God asks. Job, do you know the hunger of mountain lions? Do you know when mountain goats give birth? Have you followed a wild donkey as it wanders here and there through mountain pastures nibbling on green things? What are we to make of this line of questioning? Is God saying, do you realize how small you are? Or is God simply inviting Job to tour creation? Walk with me, says God. Look at the world. I want you to sense the depths of my care for every living thing. Who provides? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? In recent months, that verse has been sort of lodged in my head. It encourages me, it bewilders me, and it challenges me. Let me explain. First off, this verse, Job 38, 41, focused as it is on a nest of young ravens, testifies to the compassionate heart of God. It depicts God as a loving warden walking through the world, caring for the needs of all creation. And I find this picture of God to be immensely encouraging. Don't you? We'll come back to the encouraging part in a minute. The second thing this verse did as I was contemplating it was bewilder me. The word bewilder 
suggests a person wandering in the wilderness. A bewildered person has lost her bearings. If, if I take Job 38:41 seriously, it bewilders me. Why? Well, it suggests that when young ravens suffer, they react just like Job. They cry out to God. Raven chicks clawing in their nest appeal to the divine for help. And I'm bewildered by this possibility. Reading this verse, I, I wander off the well-beaten trail because basically the book of Job suggests that animals pray. It asserts that God hears the cries of the world's creatures as prayers. Now, perhaps this shouldn't surprise me, bewilder me at all, because we sing the doxology every week right here in worship. We regularly intone, praise God, all creatures here below. I really should take that part of our liturgy more seriously. All creatures here below, praise God. Back to the ravens. This verse encourages me, bewilders me, and finally, it challenges me. It challenges me to be more sensitive to the suffering of others in our midst. And by others, I'm referring to other members of the human family, people like Job, and I'm referring to other others like lions and ravens and donkeys. Why do this? Why extend our care so far afield? I suppose the simplest answer is because that's what God does. The good book describes God caring about the struggling of ravens and, and marveling over a wild donkey cavorting alongside a mountain stream. William Greenway, a fine theologian and dear friend of mine, observes that as children, we typically develop a deep love for animals. Animals populate almost every children's book, and they're joyfully studied by children in nature programs and zoos. We love animals. As we grow to adulthood, though, we often become hardened to the plight of our fellow creatures. Greenway thinks that our hearts harden as we become aware of our complicity in the suffering of animals. We do not want to own or really even consider the suffering of creatures who are tested on or who are raised in terrible circumstances. We tell ourselves that their plight is not of moral importance. We diminish them in our heads. We talk about animals, we start to talk about animals as adults, as if they do not have intelligence or feel pain or experience fear. Ironically, most of us, though, Greenway argues, do not actually think this. We do not, in our heart of hearts, believe that animals have no moral standing. And this means, Greenway says, 
that we are profoundly conflicted. I think the book of Job offers us guidance in navigating this conflicted existence. And for me, it plays out like this. As someone who grew up in farm country, around cows that were raised and kept for their milk and cows that were raised and eventually butchered for meat, I felt this conflict. At a young age, I became aware of humanity's role in the suffering of animals. In my rural community, people knew, we knew, that there were farmers who mistreated animals. And at the same time, most farmers clearly loved and respected the animals under their care. These farmers went to great ends to be kind toward and to alleviate the suffering of animals, even animals destined for people's tables. In fact, many farmers embraced the work that they do precisely because they found daily joy in their interactions with the Earth's creatures. Growing up in a rural community, it was not hard to draw this conclusion. There are more and less sacred ways to farm. There are more and less sacred ways to engage the rest of creation. The good book agrees. And then it goes a step further. Our faith challenges us to pay attention to creation and to engage the broken places in the world with love. Today's passage from Job guides us in responding to suffering, all sorts of suffering. In other words, I, I do not read God's response to Job from the whirlwind as an imperious footstomp. I'm the almighty God, and you, Job, are a gnat on heaven's windshield. You have no concept as to what it means to be the creator, so shush. No, no, look at how it plays out. God responds to Job's distress by walking through the world and pointing to the cornucopia of beings on heaven's radar, to all the many, many creatures that tug at God's compassionate heart. Here, the book of Job is, I believe, answering a question, a key human question, one that those who suffer ask over and over. Does God care? Do you know what Walt Disney's favorite song was? Can you identify Disney's favorite tune from amongst the hundreds of songs that were written while he was heading up the studio that gave us movies like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Peter Pan, Pinocchio. Okay, trivia buffs, here's a hint. It was composed by Richard and Robert Sherman for the musical Mary Poppins. It describes a woman of little means who sells bags of crumbs outside St. Paul's Cathedral. I see you whispering to each other. 
Ms. Aiello. Today we're blessed that Dr. Ryan Jackson and Rebecca Solberg have prepared Walt Disney's favorite song for you. Robert Sherman describes Disney's affection for Feed the Birds in his memoir. Turns out that every Friday afternoon after the work week was over at Disney Studios, Disney would invite the Sherman brothers to come to his office. And sitting there, they would discuss the status of various projects. But after talking for a bit, Disney would inevitably wander over to the window look off into the distance and say, play it. And on command, Dick Sherman would sit at Disney's upright piano and play Feed the Birds. 
When Sharma finished the song, Disney would usually say quietly, almost under his breath, that's what it's all about. What if compassion? What if solidarity? What if simple acts of charity are what it's all about? What if God's response to Job is not a dodge, not a put down, but a poem calling us to care? Job, I get it. I laid the foundation of this world. I'm a witness to everything that happens on this planet, from raindrops falling in the desert to the first steps of baby mountain goats. Oh, that you could see, Job, as I see. You would know that I care. This is what I do. I stand in the midst of this world in all its beauty and all its suffering, caring deeply about every living thing. In this, the good book does not answer why. Why does suffering happen? Job's poetry does something else. It pictures God as the one who stands with us in this and every moment, in sickness and in health, in life and in death, watching over us, suffering with us, daring us to see the squawks of raven chicks as worthy of compassion and concern, inviting us to exhibit this same generous love to all creation. Feed the birds. That's what it's all about. Go forth into the world, my friends. Have courage. Hold fast to what is good. Do not return evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all people, love and serve the Lord. Oh, and feed the birds. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.